This week, three sides of the coin, we go inside the studio for Spaceman, Origins 1, and Space Invader with the man who produced, engineered, and mixed those albums for Ace Fraley, Warren Hewitt. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Two Sides of the Coin. It's always been two of us. Always, <laughs> always. Every week. Occasionally we have a very beautiful woman joining us, but not today. She was invited but she's dealing with uh, birthday and stuff like that. Oh, my God. You know, did you see the photos Lisa posted, Mark, of her pregnant? <laughs> oh, my God. Did I she did. have a belly on her? Oh, my God. Oh, but you know what? Radiant and beautiful. Though. Oh, yes. I mean, petite and small and everything else. But until you turn, you know, from the back, you wouldn't tell. As Brian said, you can't tell she was pregnant looking at her from behind. Come around front. I'm like, what the hell is in that belly? <laughs> Speaking of birthdays, hmm, it's another birthday. Hey, oh, what the? Is it, isn't Ed McMahon. Is it, is it Ed McMahon's birthday today, too? Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't he usually read comments on a show or he something? He does. And you know what? Because he's not here, <laughs> and because it is his birthday, I'll take over his job today. Well, and he, I'll read well, one comment. Anyway. Hmm? <laughs> You do every week anyway. I know. Pretty much we do. <laughs> Still don't know why we need him. Well, um, hold on really quick. Really quick. Look, no one loves busting his balls more than me, as you guys know. And if you've seen the Kentucky Fried Chicken picture. He busts your balls also, right there's back. A new, uh, there's a new one, too, that he just, we haven't debuted it yet. But we love busting each other's balls. Happy birthday, Tommy. Happy we birthday to Tommy Summers. Yeah, he's 25 today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but I'll read a comment that came in on our new episode that's out one week ago. Justin Reich, the director of Ace Fraley's Fire and Water video. This comes from YouTube. Pete's CD Vinyl World writes, This is one of my favorite KISS-related videos. It gives a glimpse of what it would look like if Ace had been in KISS without makeup. They should work together on something after the farewell tour. Um, here's another great one from Richard Friend. Really fascinating because Paul, and he says in quotes, could, and that's a key word, could, have been a control freak. Not only shoot, not only shooting, but after editing. So clearly Paul isn't as uptight as people might believe. Great episode, guys. This was really interesting. Thank and, you. And and then I don't have the comment in front of me because I was going back and forth with a Kool-Aid drinker. God, I love doing ah. that. <laughs> I posted it to one of the Ace Fraley fan forums on Facebook, and somebody was like, man, this was terrible. I had to turn it off. You know, you're talking about gear and equipment, and, you know, nobody likes that. And I'm just like, I don't know. Quite a few people like it. We liked it. It's our show. We're happy with it. It's like, oh, you're so sen you're so sensitive and you can't take criticism. I'm like, I'm not upset. Believe me. I, if there's somebody in the KISS world who can take criticism, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> 
But for the most part, even the Ace Fraley fans on the fan forum loved it. Um, and I think, more importantly, they're going to love this week's episode as well because it's another Ace Fraley-focused episode. But before we get to this week's guest and, and, and the great interview we've got, um, I want to do a quick reminder. We just launched a brand new contest on Three Sides of the Coin. Head over to threesidesofthecoin.com slash contest. Put your email address in and you could win one of three Alice Cooper autographed photos. And these are thank you to Tommy Ed McMahon. It's his photo. And when he interviewed Alice last year, he had Alice autograph three photos. And Tommy gave them to us to give away. So, so super simple. Three sides of the coin.com slash contest. Put your email address in and you can win a really beautiful, really nice autographed Alice Cooper photo. Um, and Mark, Left for Dead. Big things Ooh. happened last week with Left for Dead. Yes, yes, yes. The video is. Uh is on Brave Words. A big uh, shout out and thank you to our friends over at Brave Words who went for a good 24 hours. Um, play, you were able to, to get the video and, uh, you know, pretty special stuff. I want to say thank you for always supporting three sides and, and uh, you know, allowing uh, the honor to have, uh, have Left 4 Dead uh, debut our, our video. Yeah, they were they were so cool to to do the exclusive world premiere of the Left for Dead video for Rock and Roll Dogs, and uh, it it's now if you want to see it, you'll be able to see it a little bit in a few minutes within this show, but you can also go to the Left for Dead Facebook page. The video's up there as well. Um, it's a cool video. It is, and I tell you what, a little foreshadowing because uh, our guest today was talking about how he misses that bands like some metal bands like every song has the same tempo everything is the same he goes i i i, I liked when bands tried to be a little bit more diverse and uh yeah i'm pimping the record and everything but rock and roll dogs when when we wrote that it was we were trying to write something that would be for lack of a better word radio friendly uh, it's got a nice big kiss chorus and, um, you know, kind of an ACDC vibe to it. And, uh, you know, a little different from uh, some of the other songs on the record, which may be a little bit uh, faster and heavier. And, and it's also a little bit faster. And, and excuse me, this one's also a little bit heavier. They have a, one or two other songs that maybe aren't as heavy. Um, again, um, you know, like, like, uh, like I talked about it before on the show, um, the record, uh, the new Left 4 Dead record, which uh, will be available on Friday the 29th um, for, on Spotify, and uh, it's available right now on iTunes. We, 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 we've had a couple people ask about physical copies, so um, no vinyl, um, just because with everything going on with the virus, you couldn't get vinyl printed right now. CDs will be available on demand from Amazon.com. That means... Go place an order for the CD on Amazon.com, and they'll print up a CD with a simple cover and a simple back cover and stuff like that, so you can actually get a physical copy. There's not going to be CDs in a record store type of thing, though. 
Correct, correct. This is the only way to get it is is online. And guys, that's just for logistics. And also, too, um, we're no different than than any of your favorite local bands or even some of your big mega favorite bands. Guys, you, you can't do shows. Can't do you know? shows. We're, Record we're, stores are just starting to open. Our our friends at No Name Records in Minneapolis just opened up, you know, last week. But you know, it's it's tough to go shopping. You know, even, even, and you, a lot of you may not realize this, but even Amazon.com, when this whole thing started a couple months ago, stopped accepting shipments of new music. Not just music, but anything like books, CDs, DVDs, vinyls, CD, all that stuff. They stopped taking in new shipments because they are so overwhelmed with shipping out all of the essential orders that people are placing for stuff that they need, that just to cut down on the workload, they aren't taking new product in. So it's not just somebody like Left for Dead, but every major label can't even get product put into Amazon right now until things clear down and settle it, and you know we're kind of coming through a, the other side of this. So. You're just not getting new product right now. And that's a big reason why a lot of albums are getting delayed. I would suspect, I don't know this for a fact, I suspect it had some impact on Ace Frehley's Origins too, getting pushed back to later this year. Because it was sure. supposed to be out, wasn't it supposed to be out in March? Yep, March it was supposed to be out. And I've heard from people who have heard it, raves. So uh, Ace, we can't wait for... Uh, some new Ace down the line. And guys, keep in mind, too, look, yeah, Ace Frilly, big, you know, big star, and we love him and everything. But guys, you can't go see him now. Yeah. So, you know, when that record drops, man, got to support him. You know, got to put, put it this way. Who here on this show doesn't want to listen to Ace Frilly play fucking guitar? Come on. So, you know, um, hopefully when, uh, when Origins 2 drops, well, you know, let's go out there. Let's support. Uh, let's support Ace and uh, like, you know, and, and enjoy some Ace Freely uh, rock and support roll. Support any band you like right now, because they are not making money selling stuff at shows and selling tickets. They they need you to buy stuff online from them. So go do that. Go to their website. If they've still got product in Amazon, Amazon will ship existing product, of course, but they're not shipping new stuff. Um, and, go, and that's a great thing about support them. It's it's a great thing about our new record. If you do want a CD, it's on demand. Meaning, you know, we didn't have to buy a thousand copies and put them in a warehouse. Yeah, people want a CD, they're going to order it and they'll ship it off to you. So, you know, again, we're trying a new way of getting our music out to people that uh, you know want to hear it. And and again, thank you. I've gotten so many great comments from people who have who've pre-ordered and listened to the samples and how happy they are. So, thank you. And, nice and to- you know, I think on the topic of Left for Dead, let's right now roll Rock and Roll Dogs the video. And then when that's done, we'll come back and introduce this week's guest.
Welcome back. Here's your first homework question. What did you think of the Rock and Roll Dogs video by Left for Dead? Did Mark look like his funky but <laughs> chunky self in that? Was he sexy, you know? Is he too sexy for his shirt? <laughs> I already know I'm going to get a lot of comments on my jump at the end. That was uh, that was a little joke. We were uh, I was surprised that the, the the guy who filmed that is a good friend of my son's, and uh, and we were just goofing around at the end. And uh, again, guys, you know, um, playing in a band, uh, it's just something that's a lot of fun. Got to have and, fun. I mean, isn't isn't, yeah. isn't isn't that what Gene and Paul have always said? You want to be in a band with guys you have fun with. You don't want to be miserable. Yes, yes. We don't want to be miserable. So, so, yeah, homework. First homework question. Tell us what you thought of the Left for Dead music video. Love to hear your comments on that. And how'd you, how'd you, how'd, how was my lead vocal there at the end? Hopefully you dug that, too. So. You get to um, watch me and watch me sing. So. There you go. Um, all right, so this week we're continuing our Ace Fraley theme from last week and it's even somewhat related to last week because we talked about fire and water last week this week we are joined by warren hewitt 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 there you go like stewart like stewart (laughs) who if you're not aware he's produced ace mixed ace engineered ace he's got a lot of credits on ace's last three albums Spaceman, Origins 1, and Space Invader. And Warren joins us from his studio. It's a very cool-looking studio. And chats about those three albums, working with Ace, some side discussions as Mark always takes it into some cool rock and roll discussion. I mean, you start off right out of the box, not even he talking about my Blackmore. My, yeah, my talking about Blackmore. Richie Blackmore and Rainbow. Um, Look. I loved, loved, loved this guest. I that is somebody. This is somebody I would love to hang out with all night and pick his yeah. brain. And again, what a difference from last week. Don't get me wrong. Loved our guest last week. Very informative, smart, nice guy. But he didn't have the, for lack of a better word, geek factor. Whereas Warren, our guest this week, I could geek out with him talking. You know everything from oh, he, recording. He, you know, yeah, he, he he he's you know Warren's worked with Aerosmith, so we were talking a little Aerosmith here. He knows a lot of producers. Um, Warren was just so much fun to talk with, getting mm-hmm. the perspective of being in the studio with Ace Frehley on his last three albums, which is pretty cool. I mean, Warren was there for the last three albums. And you're going to find out some stuff that you probably didn't know about, how some vocals were put down and how some guitar parts were put down. I didn't know some of this stuff. Very yeah. lot, interesting. Lot, lot, lots of cool little things. We talk about Paul Stanley and his, his recording. We talk, we, we ask Warren about Ace recording Rock and Roll Hell. You know, was what about that? I mean, it's a Kiss song that he didn't play on. Even those faces on the album, he had nothing to do with it. So yeah, just some, just some fun, fun stories, some great inside perspective from a producer, mixer, engineer. He played uh, bass, I think, on some stuff. He did some background some vocals, guitar. rhythm guitars. Um, talks about Slash, talks about John Five. Lots of cool stuff here. If you're an ace geek, you got to listen to this one. 
Also, you know what? I love the fact he he told us what kind of drum set was used. Yeah, you you the... you kind of went fanboy there for a second. Hey, look, I love <laughs> knowing that stuff. And then he even then I even asked him what size bass drum he had. I know so. that was that was that was a total <laughs> geek move. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> so let it roll, Warren Hewitt. Want to get your official Three Sides of the Coin logo and Shocker tee? Now you can. We ship worldwide. Get yours online at shop.threesidesofthecoin.com. I do need to know, though, which rainbow T-shirt are you wearing there, Mark? Um, this is actually from the last tour um from from europe matter of fact mike and my friend yeah right from from england sent it to me because i'm a huge crazy um blackmore lackey as they would say um, i don't blame you <laughs> yeah he's he's to me and, and i tell you what, as a producer and, and you know this is a great way to and and we can but but i, I want to get this out real quick don't you think that Blackmore is way overlooked for the fact that he look how many people he helped make famous. I don't really. Yeah, well, I don't really understand. Um, and, and speaking to you guys as Americans, how, you know, because the trifecta of heavy rock, as we all know, is, you know, Deep Purple as one of those three bands with Sabbath and Zeppelin in the late 60s that defined what we consider to be heavy rock. Like, I've worked with Aerosmith, I've worked with with, uh, with Ace and all this stuff, and everybody worships those bands. So how did it take Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like, 20 years too late to put Deep Purple in there? I, there's something going on. Well, well, yeah, I mean, how does it take, you know... Well, look at the bands that still aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Look right. at how long it took Ace and Kiss to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sure, we, but they, but they, but even they they were like the next decade. I could I just can't understand with Deep Purple. It was really weird. Deep Purple should have been first time, and I think yeah, first couple Blackmore, years. since since they're doing this with people like Springsteen and stuff. Yep. How about how about the guy that helped? For what it's worth, you know, Rod Evans. Yeah, it's a top ten hit single. I mean, yep. if you you're gonna know the voice, Ian Gillen, yep. David Coverdale, Glenn Hughes, yep, Ronnie James Dio. Uh, I mean, you could go. Uh, it's funny. I'm a big hockey fan too, and when I sit there and I'm you know in between you know they drop the puck and stuff, I'm like, I doubt the guy at the at the at the stadium realizes this, but they'll play like Stone Cold. And then they'll play Since You've Been Gone. And I'm like, and I'm like, that's the same guitar player who brought in two different singers yeah. on top of everything he did in the 70s. And most, most, you know, people are, are unfamiliar with the guy. Nice. Hey, you know I'm what? Huge, you, huge rainbow fan. You know, you know what, guys? I, I love this conversation yeah, that's just happening so i'm just gonna the... leave i'm just i'm it's rolling i'm leaving this in let's right. just start let's just start Love so it. so so for those of you who just jumped to this section in the podcast this week we're sitting down with warren hewart who is known in, at least in the kiss family you've worked with ace fraley on three projects that have been released am i correct on that that is correct, yeah. All fun, all, all three of them were a lot of fun, yes. 
Space Invader back in 2014, Origins Volume 1 in 2016, and Spaceman in 2018. So, so, each of them, yeah. so, so Warren, let's, let's just start with, are you a Kiss fan? Are you an Ace Frehley fan? Growing up in England, I, I didn't know Kiss that well. I didn't know Kiss that well. It, you know, when I came to America, what was interesting, I landed in America, I was in a band. And we, our English drummer stayed in, in England and had another band that he was in. They were making an album. So we arrived here to make an album and we had to hire drummers. And we had Brian McLeod and Chad Fish and all these different, um, all these different guys playing our album. But when, when we eventually uh, started auditioning drummers for, uh, to be a full-time bandmate, every single drummer of my age group that came in, the first band they loved is Kiss. Hmm. It, it's, I don't know if, you know, you, off, you obviously probably get to interview, you know, musicians all the time. And when it comes to rock musicians, if they're over the age of 40, their favorite band growing up as a little kid was Kiss. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. many so many of them are the very first band I ever saw, the first album I ever got, the first mm -hmm. the first guitarist who made me want to become yep. a rock star was Kiss, Ace Frehley, Kiss Alive, something along those lines. Oh, Always John planted, Five, planted John the Five seed. came here we, when we did the cover of Parasite. John Five comes in here and he's, he just plays everything note perfect from the album. And then they come up to the solo and he's like, he says to, he says to Ace, he's like, are you going to play the original solo in the album? And Ace is like, oh, I don't remember what I played on the solo. <laughs> and, jo and John goes, I do. <laughs> and then he plays the solo from the album. And John Five, as you know, is a masterful technical guitar player where Ace is like, you know, all guts and balls and blues rock and feel. And John's like, you know, can play circles around almost any musician. You know, he can play jazz. He, he's played with Katie Lang as well as playing, obviously, with Marilyn Manson and, and, of course, Rob Halford in two. So he's played in all of these different genres. And yet he knew note for note perfect Ace's solo on Parasite. So it's like that kind of stuff. You, you know, know it's, it's, it's funny you bring that up because... We did a, a, a show years ago where we talked about an interview Ace did where Ace himself said, I'm a sloppy guitar player, meaning, you know, he's not a Randy Rhodes type of player. He's, as, as you just described it, I mean, I, I even remember like in an interview, he goes, listen, I have no idea what all these rings contribute to the sound of my, my, my guitar playing as I'm wearing the rings and the bracelets, obviously do, do something. And we took so much heat because we repeated what Ace said, calling him a sloppy guitar player. But I'm like, but that's that is what he is, and that's a good thing. That yeah. you know, it's inter it's interesting as you described it. He can't remember it because he does it off the cuff. He doesn't know what he's exactly doing all the time. Yet somebody like John Five comes in and Studies can it. mimic the sloppiness. Yeah, but. Isn't that all of? I mean, if you were to if you were to get a hundred guitar players in a room and said, "Who's your favorite guitar player?" Most of them would probably say Jeff Beck. That's probably the one. Ace might say Jeff Beck or Jimmy Page, but or, or Peter Green or Clapton, one of the, the guitar the guys that they grew up listening to. But the reality is, is like Jeff Beck would be the last person to say that he's technically a you know a technical guitar player. He's all about feel, and part of what we love about 
all of these guitar players, the Jimmy Pages, the, the Jeff Becks, Clapton on the Bluesbreaker album, you know, the Beano cover album, is the, the kind of go for it attitude that just kind of, you know, just, ah! And when they and when they just kind of miss sometimes, that's the bit like, <gasps> it's like it's it's some of the best things about their playing. Um, you know, it's Tony Iommi. I, you know I'd what say I mean? Angus Young, if you Angus especially Young. on a song like A Whole Lot of Rosie, especially towards the end, he's yeah. all over the effort. But, but again, it's all feel. He's not Randy Rhodes' technician. He's not Ingve Malmsteen, where every note is picked fluidly. No, fuck no. It's all, you know, assholes and elbows at that point. You know, but that's the beauty behind it. Somebody asked me about Ace's uh, solo playing. And, I, and I've recorded a lot of great guitar players. You know, I've worked with Aerosmith. I did their last album. So I, I spent nearly a year working with, you know, with Joe and, and Brad. And Joe's, Joe's, Joe's one of those guitar players. Super sloppy, but really inventive. You listen to a Joe Perry guitar solo, you know it's Joe Perry. It's a Joe Perry guitar solo. He doesn't do any standard riffs. He's not like, he doesn't play a Chuck Berry riff like everybody else does. He just does his thing. The thing about Ace is he's the only guitar player, every single solo he plays, he knows how to begin it and he knows how to finish it. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have seen him live a hundred times. Okay. He's, he's the only guy I've ever worked with that knows how to do that. Some of the best guitar players in the world, they can't get out. They just can't get out of the solo. If it's 16 bars, Ace is like, and he's out. And in that bit in the middle, he does whatever he likes, but he knows how to tell a story. And uh, it's, Pretty exciting. We did this thing where we had the dueling um, on the couch. Um, we had, um, you know, Slash sitting uh, on, on, on this side of the couch and uh, Ace was sitting on the other. And they did, when they did the trading solos on Emerald, that's all live. Those are live guitar takes. And you can tell, obviously, which one's Slash and which one's Ace. But that was Ace's thing. Every time he came up for his little 16 bar or eight bars, whatever it was, section, he got in, he got out, he got in, he got out, he got in, got out every single time. And it's a, it's, it's a whole skill on its own to be able to tell a story within a solo. I tell you, two weeks ago, we had Charlie Benanti on, and, and Tommy and, and Mike were getting bored because some of our references that we were using, not bored, but we're, you know, just kind of, you know, I call it a song within a song. Right. Ace's solos are a song within a song. It, it, you're right. There's not a, a second of that that doesn't start right or finish right. And they're so hummable and memorable. Um, and that's what makes Ace so special. I think that's another reason why people, and, and this is no slight, it's because it's the same thing with Tony Iommi. When you're first learning how to play heavy riff guitar, you know, you can figure out Iron Man. And it's the same thing with Ace Frehley. You can you can figure out Ace, but that's the beauty behind it. You know what I mean? That's yep. that that simple simplicity. It's it's some because it's not that you, you know. I used to love when, when Gene would say stuff like, we don't play music that you need a PhD to understand. And guess what? Neither did Chuck Berry. That's just yep. the way Gene, you know, lets people know. And some people took that as, oh, you can't play. No, 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 not at all. It's the simple simplicity that that lets you enjoy the music. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. It's uh, it's got to be guttural. It's got to have an emotional content. Hey, um, uh, should we be recording on our end or are you? No, just no, recording we're, we're good. I'm recording on my end here. Okay, you want us to record just for fail safe, just in case, or uh... um, if you, if you want to, go ahead. But but um, I can see the levels coming through, and I can see things recording here. So I'm okay, good. he's gonna he's gonna do it just in case something All explodes. Right. Um, Warren, you know, as somebody who's you know produced, mixed, engineered, worked with Ace on on these albums, and going back to what we've just sort of talked about his playing style, how challenging is it? to sit there and go, Ace, you remember what you just did? Can you do that again? And he's like, I don't remember what I did. What did I do? Well, the, I think that probably would have been a challenge for, you know, uh, as, as you know, or you, you may not know, but a lot of my friends made his records in the 70s. Like I, I grew up, you know, listening to Jack Douglas, Shelly Yakis, Bob Ezrin, you know, Roy Sakala albums in England. And all of those guys make his records. You know, they they all had something to do with it. You know, they were all involved in it. Eddie Kramer, you know, and so they were at the mercy of tape. So maybe they had a couple of takes. They could do two or three takes of solos, maybe. And then they might want to comp two or three of those takes together. So that would have been probably a lot more difficult. But now we're in this world of digital that, frankly, it's like, it works. It sounded amazing. Let's try another one. Oh, that was more exciting. He's usually the one pushing. I think on all of those things, um, something I wanted uh, that nobody, I don't think anybody knows about Ace. So the first album we did on Space Invader, he had it largely tracked. And then he came in and he gave me some production credits because I retracked some stuff. I really did some guitars or, or did guitars that hadn't been finished, did some vocals with him and, you know, ended up doing some stuff together. But this is what is amazing. So I'd never met him before. He sent me a song. I mixed it, sent it back. He gave me a couple of notes, and he went, okay, cool. You, you, you're going to mix the record. I like your mix. So he says, I'm, I'll be over at 1 p.m. the next day. He drives up, and he comes in. He goes, he, he, I've never met him before, and he goes, oh, I need to set up my stuff. And he brings in his computer setup. He brings in a full screen, and he's got Pro Tools running, and he's the Pro Tools editor. And he's choosing the guitar takes. I don't know if anybody's ever talked about this before. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, the guy's in his early, mid-60s or whatever, but there he is, and he's, like, learning new tricks. And he knows what he's doing. He's not looking like, eh. He actually is editing and putting it together. So that's another pressure off as well. It's like he would, you know, if we were listening to something and he didn't like it, he'd be like, oh, give me a second. And then he'd go and find the take that he liked and then give me the take to use. But to go back to your question... I just wanted to say that because I mean, it's, it's a big freaking deal to be a Pro Tools engineer. You know what I mean? Yep. At, when you've already sold millions of records because, you know, isn't some kid supposed to do that yeah, for you? Exactly. I mean, Somebody fact, else can do that. Somebody else can do it. But I think it's just sort of the reason why he's probably so successful is that he gives a, you know, gives a crap and, and, and goes in the extra mile. But anyway, uh, going back to your original question, I think for the guys on tape back in the 70s, and through the 80s, that probably was part of the thing. But by the time I got him, you know, 40-something years later, he's been beaten up by guys like Bob Ezrin, of course, who's a perfectionist, as we all know. You know, and so he's got this skill of getting in and out of solos. Each solo is its own story. And because we're in the world of DAWs, digital audio workstations, I might have five takes at the solo. And we go, 
take three is the best. And he goes, yeah, but I like the ending from take one. Boom, we stick on two bars in the ending of take one and you're done. We didn't do any like surgery surgery. It was either a solo that was chosen or maybe two pieces of a solo. It's, it's not that, it's, you know, it wouldn't make sense to piece something together in bits and pieces. It wouldn't sound like Ace Freely playing. So, so how, it was relatively easy. How did you um, end up coming to work with Ace? Uh, two, two or three different recommendations. Um, he was looking for a mixer for the album. And I, I, I think I got lucky because I got recommended by different people. And I was the common name that came up. Um, I know Matt Starr recommended me, um, who was playing drums with him at the time, or had played drums with him in the past and, and had played on a lot of the studio stuff. Um, and so he recommended me. Then uh, Ace was at uh, a recording studio a friend of mine had and asked, and they recommended me. And I think um, with the Jack Douglas um, and uh, Aerosmith uh, Association, once he found that, put all the dots together, probably thought, oh, that's the right kind of sensibility. Because there's probably a lot of um, guys that um, could make a, a super modern sounding record with him. But I think he's probably also cognizant of the fact that you walk into a studio and you see an actual console and you see real gear, even though obviously we're working in digital as well. I think it's that balance, isn't it, where you can speak the language of being modern, but at the same time, make an artist feel comfortable because they can look around and go, okay, those are Poltex. The guy knows what he's doing. You know, that's an SSL console. It's, you know, cause that's, that's what he would have made, you know, 20 albums on, you know, right. real, you know, that kind of analog equipment. It seems, it seems to me, um, you and Ace have obviously clicked it, it, something worked out because again, you've got, three albums under your belt with him um that that's a big statement to say he keeps coming back to you yeah i don't think i'm doing the new one though i think it's already done <laughs> <laughs> yeah origins I, 2 origins 2 yeah. should be late this year I, I i wonder why they're pushing it back um i don't know i could only guess it's because of the whole virus thing that uh you know, Amazon is is not taking shipments of new albums right now, so why release an album that you can't go to Amazon and buy? So they're pushing it back to wait until all that kind of loosens up a bit. Give me one second. I'm very sorry. No problem. My headphone cable got caught around my chair. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You maybe you're right. Um, well, me. I tell you one thing. I want I wanted to talk to you about because it's something that. You know, as as our conversation began, and, and this is something uh, that I'm very, just something that means a lot to me. I love the fact that the guitar heroes and aces certainly at the forefront of that. Back in the 70s, you could have had Billy Gibbons, Richie Blackmore, Tony Iommi, Alex Lifeson, you know, a, you know Ace Frehley, and you could just ask them to hit one chord and you'd know who it was by the sure. tones and and i think that is sadly missing because you mentioned slash early in our conversation he's one of the few modern gunslinger guys who does have his own sort of tone he he's right there with that could hit an a and you go that slash and 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 i miss that because there nowadays it, there's everything's so 
you know, compressed and especially for for what people call heavy metal. Now, everything's chunk, chunk, you know, drop D, chunk, chunk. I'm like, whatever happened to, you know, a hundred watt Marshall, <laughs> you know, just just record right. that. That's what it does. Well, I, 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 I wanted to ask is, is how it, how did Ace get his tone on that? I mean, how much process was involved when you were getting his tones? Well, I have. I have I have a lot of amps. Um, I don't know if you can see in the background. I, I, mean, I can actually, yes. Yeah, there's a couple of Marshalls. I have a Laney, uh, the Engel. Talking to Richie Blackmore, it's the Richie Blackmore model. Um, we have a Mesa, which belongs to Eric, who's sitting out of shot. We have a Vox AC100, and we have an Eddie Van Halen um, amp there, and then we have like another four or five in there. I think we have twelve or thirteen heads, and but everything was done through the uh, JMP, the 1978 Mark II, and Marshall. That's sort of pretty much, you know, when we plug into different amps. First thing he said is, do you have a Marshall? And I said, yes, we have a few. Mm. And then, it, and, and I was like, probably this one, it's going to be a sound that you love. And he plugged in and went, yeah, good. And then we moved on. So we didn't, I, I think we tracked pretty much everything through that with all of the overdubs and solos. Um, yeah. Went, and we did some retracking because I know he had used like a digital effects processor on, 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 at least on Space Invader on a few tracks. And then when we came to mix, I think we retracked some of those rhythm guitars. Um, and then there was a few songs that had a lot of tracking that needed to be done, just a couple. You know, but Space Invader was largely done before he arrived here. But we did sing some stuff. I did some backgrounds with him as well. Sung some new lead vocals probably finishing up lyrics, you know, the, you know, the usual kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, Marshall, JMP. I, I actually, that's probably in, in order. If I do his entire discography, that's my third favorite ACE record is space invader. I love that one. And I still think what a girl yes. wants should have, what a great song that is. And it just, yep. unfortunately you didn't have a radio, you know, there's no, there, there hasn't been any form of, decent rock radio in 20 years i don't think i mean a, a song that good doesn't stand a, a chance of getting on you know um it's sad too because there's so many modern rock acts or even you know vintage acts who still put out good music there's zero outlet for it or at least you know in on on radio and stuff like that and that really is too bad and and that's another reason why you know, I, I have so much respect for Aces that he keeps putting stuff out, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think I think all bands now don't worry about the radio so much when it comes to rock, and I think that's okay. I think the beauty is obviously we're in a, a lockdown situation, so nobody's touring at the moment. But in reality, you know, there's so many more outlets from touring, from merch, um, which has grown massively over the last couple of decades and more than adequately, you know, made up for record sales because, you know, you know, back in the 70s, a massive record was a gold record. The 90s is this weird kind of anomaly, speaking of ace anomaly, but, uh, you know, that, <laughs> you know, where people got used for this sort of 15 year period of like early 90s through to like, mid early 2000s people got used to the fact that you could have one hit single and sell five million albums but that's just total 
Yeah, it was just a period that happened. Right. It wasn't like that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or even the 80s. You know, big albums were gold and platinum. We were happy for them. And then there became this time in like the mid-90s, you'd have one modern rock single, and people would buy two to five million copies of your album. And it made lots of people very wealthy, but didn't sustain careers. So I think, you know, you look at the artists like, you know, like Ace and Kiss as a whole, the, obviously the whole band, and, and Aerosmith and all of these bands we're talking about, Deep Purple, even with the new lineup with Steve Morse or, or Richie or any of these people, they they just kind of exist above that. And it doesn't really matter because they are credible. One of the f unfortunate things for modern rock bands is like they it's really difficult for them to break through into that world. You, you know what I mean? It's like there is this sort of echelon of bands that will always be those bands that we've been talking about. Well, we'll, you know what the what? But really, within the last 10, 15 years, I could name check a band like Cheap Trick and, and of course, Deep Purple, the Steve Morris stuff. And that those Ezrin albums that he's done recently are just freaking incredible. And sure. I could even go with, uh, you know, and it, it was within the last 10, 15 years, but uh, that Doom and Gloom track that the Rolling Stones released. I mean, that sounds as good as anything they've ever done. And, and you know, sure. it, nothing, you know. And, and it's sad because... I, as somebody who still buys their music and who still, you know, is very passionate about that, it, it just drives me crazy that even on, you know, even on like Ozzy's Boneyard on, on Sirius XM, they won't play the Morris stuff. I mean, there is literally zero outlet for that stuff. And it just, right. you know, even though I tell you what, uh, another great example is the painkiller record by Judas Priest. The, the, the last one, I mean, it's a couple of years old now, but, you know, we're talking about modern recordings. That's as good as anything they've ever done in the, in the entire catalog to, to my ears. And and it's like you didn't hear it on the radio. You didn't hear it even, you know, even on Sirius or any of the you don't hear it anywhere. And it's yep. and it's you know, it's up to us fans to, to, to go out there and, and find that stuff. But. Man, it's it's frustrating. <laughs> Warren, you know, to that point, when you're working with somebody like Ace or any of the bands you've worked with, do you have zero concern at this point as to how that song is going to sound on the radio, how it's going to be received? Is that, you know, because I'm sure 30, 40 years ago, there was a lot of people in your ear going, oh, that's not a radio song. you got to change the chorus to make it more radio friendly. Oh, it's it's. 10 seconds too long, cut it down. Obviously, that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, it's sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, I think you, you you make music for the audience. You know, when I'm working with a young artist, for instance, <clears throat> you know, and they're being very pedantic and, and particular about things, I, I have to remind them or they're concerned about things that aren't important. That's a better way of describing it. I have to remind them, I'm like, who's waiting for your record when it's a young artist? I'm like, well, you know, my 400 you know, friends on Instagram or something like that. And I'm like, nobody's waiting for your album, so you don't have to worry about conforming. And then with a major artist with a legacy, like you know, Ace or Aerosmith or any of those bands, it's more important that they make music that A, they want to make, and B, is for their fans. Because it's it's not about worrying about being relevant to, you know, a an audience that's listening to EDM. 
because unless you really want to go out of your way to take your guitar record and and put a bunch of program synths and, and stuff in it so you're not really worrying about that game as much as you are caring about making something that's true to yourself and you know satisfies the needs of an audience so i think it's it's i do both you know and it's it depends on the artist when it's something like ace and space invader was incredibly well received and i think it was his highest i think it was the highest charting anything album by kiss for 30 years wasn't it it, it, it was it broke it, I, I know it was i know it was at least the highest charting solo album by any kiss member yeah i think it might have been the highest charting kiss album kiss related album in a long time i can't remember the, the i did once know it somebody told me what it was or that the label were very very happy but it, it's because you know like you guys were pointing out he made a record that fans wanted to hear a, a record that sounded like you know two years after his last great solo record from you know late 70s and it had that same sound and he and it's probably why he wanted to mix it you know through a console and didn't want to do it in the box and anomaly is a great record but it definitely sounds a little bit more digital than space invader does digital uh, space invader has more of a you know an ace freely classic sound so um yeah, it's kind of a catch-22. I, I get your question, and it's important, but I think it's all about, like, who are you selling to? And the fact that if you can have a few hundred thousand or million people in the world that are dying to hear your record spread all over the world, it's, you know, those are far more important, those key, core, excited yep. fans than worrying about whether you get on the radio or not. I, I, I would imagine that could make the job of producing and, and recording the album easier because you're less concerned now with how do I maintain my sound but freshen it up and become relevant and become new. Now it's just be yourself. Yeah, but it, it is that first point you're just making as well, though. Uh, I'll give you an example. So um, a good friend of mine um, um, remastered the whole George Harrison catalog. So he went back and did all the Black Horse um, a dark horse sorry all the dark horse catalog and he had to do two different things the first time he mastered it he mastered it um pretty much like a slightly more modern version of the original albums and somebody people started hearing it before it was released and they're like oh this doesn't sound as good as the original and what he realized was People are being bombarded with music 24 hours a day in their car, headphones, TV, walking into a store. When, when we were kids, we walked into a store. Music sounded like this. Now it sounds like, you know, it's like it's a freaking onslaught. And they, you go into clothing stores, even like kids clothing stores, and there's like a freaking sub in the corner. It's like, so if you give something to somebody that does sound like 1974, it sounds old fashioned to them because it doesn't have the extended low end that they're used to hearing 24 hours a day, whether it be in their TV in their five one with their sub or their car with the big subs in it, or walking into these stores or headphones, earbuds. There's the used to this massive extended, which didn't exist. You know, um, Jack Douglas would tell me and Shelly Ackers would say they would make a record. They'd send it to mastering. They get the master back and they, they'd, they'd be so disappointed because the low end would have to be wiped off the vinyl. So the stylist didn't jump, jump out of the, 
of the groove. And so they would be in the, in the tracking room, you know, with these huge, you know, Osbergers in those days, no near field monitors, but huge Osbergers in the early 70s, pumping low end, and then they get the mix back and all the low end had been wiped off. And then, of course, you hope for the RIAA curve, you know, built in with a loudness control and the old stereo to bring that low end back. But the reality is, is that if I made a record, any of us made a record, which sounded like 1974, everybody would be like, oh, it doesn't sound as good as the old records. So you actually have the job is to get the feeling, the energy, the performances more most importantly, because I think the thing that dates a record and makes it sound bad is when you just digitally edit the life out of it, try to sound modern. It actually makes you sound out of touch. I've seen that with a lot. I'm sure you guys can give me instances of where you put on a record by an artist you imagine, uh, sorry, admire for the last 30 or 40 years, and you put it on and you're so disappointed because they've tried so hard to be modern that they've actually removed all of the passion and the energy of their music by editing it within within an inch of its life. I really like Jane's Addiction. Great band. I loved everything Dave Jordan with it. When they did that modern rock record about 15 years ago, whatever it was, it just sounded too contemporary. And it, it had that same, like, so what happens is when you start tightening everything and making everything so perfect, you lose. And you were talking about this earlier, Mark. It's like with the guitar player, you make every guitar player have the same feel. Suddenly, instead, instead of going, it's like, da, 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 da. Everything's like, we're all playing at exactly the same time when, you know, the guitar player should be like either just a bit on top when he's hitting a chord or a little bit late when he's bending that note. And that's what gives the guitar player the identity. So I think um, I think the challenge, not there was a challenge, but the, the job description was make it sound modern, but don't make it sound like a modern rock record so that it just loses all the essence of what was great about the artist. I think a great example of that, and I've brought it up on the show before, but you, you'd have to be a fan of the band. I, I'm a huge Aerosmith fan, and I mean, I, they rival Kiss in my passion. However... When they did the Honkin' on Bobo, the blues record, and I was so excited. You have no idea how excited I was for that because they're coming off, you know, their MTV era polish. And I'm like, can you get back to, you know, I want to hear Draw the Line and Rocks and, you know, and I'm like, okay, so what do they do? Yes, correct. What do they do on a blues record? They overproduce the son of a bitch to it within an inch of its life. And it sounds like, you know, damn near a Mariah Carey record. I'm like, what are you, how do you screw up a blues record? I'll tell you how you bring in all, everything you just said. They overproduced it, to, you know, within an inch of its life. And, and that got me thinking too, that that's what, you know, here's the direct opposite. Are, did you hear that? I, is it, what's the blues record that the Stones did a couple years ago? Something in blue or whatever. They did it with, uh, you like, mean, yeah, Don Smith did it. I, I I was friends with Don. Unfortunately, died a few years ago. But I know the one you mean. It was a, uh, it was like an acousticy kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, but, um, it's, but it's, I will tell you though, with Honkin' on Bobo, that record didn't leave Jack Douglas's re- hands sounding like that. Because you got to remember yeah, that, that just, Jack Douglas and James Cena, um, and I would, you know, it, it's the the James Cena. And Jack Douglas as a as a pairing, and I I engineer with Jack Douglas, but I will take my hat off to Jay Messina. I mean, 
go tap on his credit list. It's just so, or it'll be half of the favorite records. And we're obviously talking about rocks and toys in the attic and some of the best selling records and best recorded records ever. It definitely didn't leave their hands that way. It was a raw blues record when they let go of it. Do you think? I, do you think that's? I will stop uh, you there. Think Tyler did that. <laughs> You I think don't. Tyler did that. Uh, I, I, you know, we we could we could definitely uh, we could definitely go off into different directions on that one. Um, you know, there was probably an effort. You know, with a band like Aerosmith, you know, there there is a um, there is definitely like all great bands. There's always a tension, isn't there, between like singers and guitar players and stuff like that, which makes them um, great. And sometimes, you know, with the Stones is a great example. Sometimes with the Stones, it's it's Keith. And it's what we love, you know, the rawness. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, Mick and it's got a disco beat in it. You know what I mean? It's like, so I think that's without say, without either confirming or denying, because it didn't actually work on the record. <laughs> I only know what Jack Jack and Jack has said, is that, yes, it probably got a little swayed in too far in the other direction. But I know Jay, Jay is an engineer is breathtakingly good i mean he's insanely talented as, as as a producer when when you become aware of stuff like that going on does that become really challenging for you to step in and go uh wait a second you can't come in and mess with this it's not going to be what you wanted it to sound like i mean is that is is that an uncomfortable position as a producer to be in i think one of the things and i will answer the question but i, I don't want to sound like like a politician, I'm changing the question, but I think the di the dynamic is one of one of the realities with some artists, um, well, especially young ones, but some artists is like they they operate out of fear, and when they're when they're making decisions, fear based decisions, that's when you get those kind of records because what they're thinking is like I've got to sound hip and contemporary, and they forget that there's a million people running around waiting to hear, you know, a, a, their album. And it, it, you know what I mean? And so yep. they, they have to, it's, it's that sort of awareness. And, but with production, you know, I think that it depends, you know, I think for Jack and Jay, if they're seeing it through, it's not going to be an issue. So I think it's what happens after it leaves their hands. Um, back, back to Ace, when you were working on his three albums, was there a conscious effort to go, listen, that 1978 solo album is it that that's you know in the mind of his million fans that's the album everybody goes to first were you trying to connect to that were you trying to be influenced by the 78 album or was it just well, could be where you are today well that's it, it, yes is the answer um but it's actually easier for me because I, I, just before we do it, did our call, I was on a live stream. I literally finished five minutes before, be, uh, like at two twenty-five, and on that live stream, I was on with George Massenberg and Shelley Yakas, and George did like Little Feet, you know, the last record album, and Shelley did, you know, John Lennon and 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 just and and Tom Petty, and the point is, is like these Ezrin, you know, we're talking about Ezrin and you know everything he did. It, obviously leading up to the war with Pink Floyd. These are some of my favorite sounding records and periods. Um, or, you, you know, even though I didn't grow up in England, massively aware of Kiss, they weren't anywhere near obviously as big in England as they were in America. 
it doesn't matter. I was a fan of those sounds of records made by those guys in New York, those engineers and those producers. So when I listen to Ace's albums, you know, Ace's uh, big solo album, it sounds exactly like that to me. It's not a departure. It is those guys in those rooms making those records. So it's actually very much my sensibilities. And I do like a modern approach, but I like a modern approach with that aesthetic. It's like bringing those two worlds together. Because I still, my golden period of music, and it falls into like down to earth, like we were talking about earlier, is about set. And don't get me wrong, there's records that have nothing to do with this, but my golden area for me, being a huge Queen fan, Night of the Opera, for instance, is like 75 to about 85. Don't get me wrong. I love all the 60s stuff. Dark Side of the Moon, obviously, you know, early 70s. There's plenty of albums which ignore my point. But the sonically, the records I admire are about 75 to 85. I feel like that's where everything came together. The technology was at its finest. SSLs were out. So you had beautiful, expensive, wonderful sounding consoles. You had the best tape machines, studio releasing. I mean, I have a studio two-inch tape machine there. You, you know, and and people still cared about writing amazing songs. Albums had like different genres on them. You know how you could put on an album and it wouldn't all just be like 10 of exactly the same song sound yep. with the same guitar sound. Well, like, the every... perfect. You got the, you yeah. got Lazing on a Sunday afternoon, then you have the Prophet song. I mean, you couldn't, yeah, be exactly. more, you yeah. know, different. So, so for me, it's, it's definitely, I obviously want to have a modern version of that, making sure that we're using what's good about modern technology, which is extended low end and high end. And, you know, the ability to have greater dynamics, get louder when it's louder, quieter when it's quieter, you know, all of those things. But at the same time, I want people to walk away thinking, oh yeah, that could be glass houses. That could be the river. That could be the game. That could be, you know, down to earth. That could be, you know, so many different incredible albums iron maiden's first couple of records i mean there's so many amazing albums from that period which just you know broke kicked down walls and, and just created incredible stuff and one of the things i love about that period is the songwriting was impeccable every the beatles were just close enough that people still wanted to write a song that could get on the radio where these days i feel like a lot of rock bands they they're more worried they don't want to sell out and by not selling out they don't sell you know they don't want to have a song that anybody can sing they're all like you know if they write something you know that's considered to be pop meaning popular they're like oh that's too pop i mean what you mean somebody might sing along with you it's 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 a tough one it's like it's a, always a battle when you're working with younger artists because they want to be cool they want to have a sound they want to be all of these things you know, the bands that we love in all genres have songs that could be on the radio. And, you know, so it's getting that thing, you know, that balance. So anyway. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, to your exact point, you know, for Kiss fans, you look at the Destroyer album that was produced by Ezrin and there's Beth. What the hell is that on a Kiss record at that time? Completely unheard of. But it worked. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, So... On, on Origins Volume 1, um, last week we had Justin Reich on, who was the video director for Fire and Water. Obviously, Fire and Water features Paul Stanley. Can you talk to us about making that happen, working on that? What was it like? That that was in touch. So basically, we tracked, um, I have a 64 Ludwig kick 
kit, sorry, drum kit. So I had the 64 Ludwig in the other room. Matt Starr played drums. Um, I played rhythm guitar on it, um, or a rhythm guitar on it, because I played some rhythm guitar, and Ace played rhythm as well. And then, um, I can't remember, did Ace play bass on it, or did uh, Chris Wise play bass on it? I'm blanking now. Absolutely blank. Either Ace or Chris played it because whoever it was, it was flown in. That was sent separately, and all that, and Ace was just sitting down on the couch, emailing away, and he's like, "Yeah, Paul, Paul's agreed to uh, to sing on it," and we're like, "Great, that's fantastic." So I I did a I did a a, a bounce of the instrumental and sent it over. And uh, Greg Collins, um, I'm sure you know, is, mm-hmm. uh, has engineered the last couple of Kiss records. I sent it over him, who I know anyway, and he's local, he's down the street. And uh, what, was, what was really nice about it is he wrote back to me immediately and said, wow, the drums are huge. Where did you record them? And I sent him a photograph of my live room, which is like a bedroom size. <laughs> <laughs> what size so, bass drum you got on that kit? Is that the 24? Uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a 24, yeah. So, but yeah, so it's, yeah, it's just, um, you know, I think it, it seemed to come together really easily. I mean, maybe Ace will tell you a different story, but I don't remember him being stressed. I don't remember it being anything negative. I think, you know, isn't that, I, I, I'm not involved and in understand all of the ins and outs of the Kiss story and how they came and went members and all this stuff. I don't know all of that stuff, but for what I can tell, there's there's a lot of love there in real wo- in the real world, like outside maybe of the posturing. I think in the real world, when I went to see Ace play on on the supporting tour for the record, when he played in L.A. at um, I can't remember the name of the the it's in Beverly Hills the 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 theater. I've seen him there a couple of times. I went backstage and hung out, and Gene was there, and it was all very pleasant, and everybody was very talkative and sharing stories and being nice. So I I don't. I don't know all of the ins and outs, but from a perspective of mine, of just seeing people interact, they all seem to get on really quite well with each other. So, and and, uh, maybe, and maybe that's ruining maybe that's ruining some of the no, story. No, not not story. at all. I mean, that's actually <laughs> helping paint the story to to show that you know the drama that you might see in the press is not there in real life. I think, you know, I think, uh, I think Ace sent Paul a guitar. I think he gave him a guitar as well. I can't remember the story. I, you have to ask Ace. Um, I think, I don't know. I, they, and they all seem like smart, incredibly driven people. You know I mean? How could anybody that runs a business for how many years? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 40, coming on 50 years yep. running a business. Yep. So Paul Paul did all of that remotely. He never came into the studio and was in the studio with Ace at the same time for anything. No, he he did that remotely because we were still recording and mixing the record because um, for that album, it was all covers. And as you know, there was tons of guest stars. Um, mm-hmm. John Five, obviously, uh, Slash. Um, the only other person that was remote was Mike McCready, um, you know, from Pearl Jam. Um, Lita came down and sung and played here. Yeah, everything else was people came down and it was absolutely fantastic, you know, to be able to 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 have them come in the studio and hang out. Slash was uh, um, was very sweet, very easy to work with. Um, he just showed up and said, "Do you have a Marshall?" And we said, "Yeah, we have a second one over there." And he plugged into it, and we have um, 
we have a whole bunch of Les Pauls. You know, Ace had his Les Paul, of course. Um, and he just looked at them. And I said to him, oh, there's that ugly looking one over there that the headstock's broken off a couple of times. That sounds fantastic. So he plugged in about two or three different ones. And he went, yeah, you're right. That's the one that sounds the best. And so he, he played his solos on that. And um, that was it. I mean, it was... Did, did John came in, obviously, with his signature series Telecaster, which he played on did, the track. Did Paul, Paul Stanley um, have any direction, input, guidance on, on the song itself, on mixing the song, on, you know, fix this, tweak that, or was he pretty hands-off? Uh, I don't, he may have had some comments to Ace that were, could, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to comment on that because I, I remember, I do remember, I do remember when we were doing songs that um, Gene had written, you know, there was some stuff that Gene had done. Um, and so Gene had some, you know, comments, mixed comments that we took into account and changed. He wanted his bass to sound grittier and even more distorted. So we put some extra like grit on his bass. I do remember he wanted less reverb on a snare on one song, so we took the reverb down, made it a lot. So Gene definitely had some, you know, couple of comments on that. On the whole, they were, you know, and then so, but Paul may, quite frankly, may have told Ace a couple of things that he just said to me as part of mix notes. You know, I think sometimes that happens when you're working with the artist in a room. I just, but I do remember him pointing out that Gene specifically wanted his bass tone to be grittier. Um, but Paul may have said similar things to Ace and just, you know, because the, the mixed notes we did were pretty straightforward. I mean, Fire and Water's like a fairly true to the original, just a heavier, just a bit more like drums are bigger and, you know, roomier and the guitars are a little bit more distorted and everything's just a little bit more dramatic, you know. And, and of course, Paul does the, does, doesn't does do the English fire. He does fire. You know, he has his way of singing it. So it was like them giving a giving a, a you know a, a, a accurate cover in respect to playing the right parts but with their twist and their you know going back to what mark was talking about how you know you can play the same parts but if the guitar player and the singer and the drummer and the bass player have enough identity it it doesn't sound like you know what i mean it has so much more personality and obviously all those guys have tons of personality on on the origins album one of the songs and 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 let me know if you can recall anything about this was rock and roll hell which was a kiss tune on the creatures yeah, of the night album that ace wasn't involved in so yeah i know we, it's not funny yeah it, it was it was actually fun i mean it's a great tune um but what do you recall about ace doing rock and roll hell a kiss song that ace was never part of he wasn't even in the band at the time although he did technically he did the promo tour but he was basically not in kiss See this? Yep. Yeah, Dick Wagner. Yeah, so Dick Dick was uh, Dick was a friend of mine. I did uh, I did some recording with Dick, and uh, we actually did the uh, we did a charity single for St Jude's together. So so you know I I definitely heard uh, you know obviously with Aerosmith as well you know because um, you know Ezrin used you know him and uh, and um, oh god why am I blanking? I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> Why am I blanking? Uh, give me one second. Oh, on, really... on, on Destroyer? On Destroyer? Yeah. Sweet but... you... no, the, uh, I... I'm, I'm looking. Give me one second. 
I'm being a, an idiot here for not remembering this. I mean, you I'm, know, the two guitar players, it was Dick Wagner and, Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter. Steve Hunter, thank you. God, sorry. I'm a Steve. Detroiter. I'm from Detroit. I, see, we I know. know <laughs> I know, but I did, I did as well. I'm just like brain dead. I couldn't think of it. It's so sad. Please, please edit me to sound not like a total idiot on that. It's embarrassing that I couldn't remember that. Because, you know, those two guys played on like, you know, Peter Gabriel's records, you know what I mean? And let alone like rock stuff. Those guys are monster guitar players. So I think my point is, is like, I, I you know, none of that is really particularly shocking. I mean, there was sort of inevitability, wasn't there, in those days that, you know, guys like Bob Ezrin, they were hired as producers to get an album made. Yep. So if it meant you were were not available for one reason or another, and I, I don't, I'm sure you guys know the reasons and I don't, but for whatever whatever reason, you still got the album made. So if it meant that Dick and Steve played the rhythm guitars or played play whatever, I mean, you know, it's the same with Aerosmith. What was the famous guitar riff that uh, Dick plays? Is it the same old song and dance? What is it? Isn't, that, isn't it that one? Which one is it? I mean, there's, these are all well-known stories. And to me, it doesn't take anything away from any musician knowing that, you know, a song on an album or some parts were played by somebody else because that's what happened. You know, and if I'm a kid in 1975, 76, I really don't give a crap either. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I, that's, what I, that's what I've always said as a fan. You know, as, as a Kiss fan, it's like, I, I don't think any less of a song because I learned that Ace Fraley wasn't on it. It's still a great song, and it's by my favorite band, Kiss. So I don't care. At the end of the day, it's yeah. the song that matters. Yeah, because it's like saying with the Beatles. I mean, does 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 it mean that, uh, you know, John and Ringo and George Harrison aren't worth anything because Eleanor Rigby is just strings and a vocal? You know, only Paul's on the track. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's just... It, it's a really it's an interesting argument to for anybody to sort of like uh denigrate anybody if they because of because they do or did not play on a one particular song on whatever but anyway he yeah he was aware of it and he said something about it and i remember john five said something about it and if anything and it was in all the press and everybody talked about it um you know i, I never questioned his motives maybe his motives were just to be like hey always loved that song now i'm going to do my version of it now i can I imagine that's what he was going through his mind. Did you ask him about it? No, we, we haven't we haven't chatted with him yet. But yeah, I imagine he's probably like, I'll show Kiss how that album should have sounded with Ace Fraley on lead guitar. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's to me, it's like, you know, Dick was an amazing guitar player and a great guy. God rest his soul. I, I, I feel blessed that, you know, I got to work with him before he died. And and, um, you know, I worked with, with Ace after I worked with Dick. And it, to me, it's just like it's all one and the same. And we're talking about, like I said, we go back to those same names that keep coming up. You know, Dick and Steve and, and Ezrin and Jack Douglas and Shelley Yakas and Eddie Kramer and Roy Sakala and all those New York guys that worked on all of these records that we all consider to be Messina. You know, we consider to be the great rock and roll records that we always reference. So... The fact is, it's those people making records together. Goes back to your question when you were asking me about how conscious was I of a 19, 1978 Salo record. I'm like, that's the whole period that I hold in high esteem. And my job is to recreate that in people's minds, but give it enough of a modern twist that they don't think it sounds old fashioned. Be, before we wrap up here, Warren, and I hope this doesn't put you on the spot, but if we looked at the three <laughs> albums you did, Spaceman Origins and Space Invader... 
Can you share from each album the track that made you just go, damn, that's it. That was perfect. I love that. It sounded great. Whatever, you know, that made you feel like I nailed it. I think Parasite on Origins, you know, and, and, and not not knowing Kiss inside and out and then putting it on an album because I've actually just called it up here. So 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 Origins um, is White Room, Massive Soul. Street Fighting Man, Massive Soul. Spanish Castle Magic, Massive Soul. Fire and Water, one of my favorite bands, Free. That album, Fire and Water, is one of my favorite albums ever. Emerald, huge Thin Lizzy fan. Huge Thin Lizzy fan. You know, uh, Bring It On Home, obviously, you know, the, the Led Zeppelin version. Wild Thing, one of the most classic rock songs ever. Probably the every yep. kid learns to play. You know, you pick up a guitar and you go... I mean, it's like the first song I think I learned. Spanish cast, uh, Magic Carpet Ride, um, you know, Cold Gin, Till the End of the Day, Rock and Roll Hell. Okay, so Parasite, it's like, it just slots in there. I didn't know. So, yeah, that's the song that stands out for me because it's like we're in here with all these, like, rock standards, like songs that you play in your first band. Half of those are songs I played in my first, first band. I played Fire and Water in my first band. You know what I mean? White Room, my first band, badly. Didn't play Emerald. That was a bit much from my first band. Definitely played Wild Thing. I mean, these are like rocks, you know. They're standards. The standard tracks you play. Yeah. And Parasite is like, wow, this, this just sits in there. And it's such a simple three-note riff. And you're like, why? You know, it goes back to what you guys were talking about, like how it doesn't have to be complicated, but it can still be massively hooky. So definitely Parasite from that record by far. Because I, I didn't know. Honestly, I didn't know that it that's what would happen, that it would like stand out and be like part of the, uh, you, you know what I mean? Be just sit nicely in there. Um, and then let's have a look at Spaceman because I'm going to go back and uh, I think Rocking with the Boys was the most fun. Definitely the most fun. Rocking with the, yeah. Bronx Boy, though, um, I know is sort of, you know, is, is uh, autobiograph autobiographical. Um, and then the Without You, I'm Nothing, which was the track I was talking about that, that Gene wanted and Your Wish Is My Command, that he wanted his uh, bass to be more gritty. It's probably those first four songs. I don't know which is my favorite. Without You, I'm Nothing, Rocking With The Boys, Your your Wish Is My Command, Bronx Boy. I just remember those those ones a lot. Wait, was, was, was there ever any discussion that Rocking With The Boys is going to be perceived as Beth 2.0? Really? Hmm. Just because of the story of sort of what yeah, it's the telling. Line. The storyline. Not not uh, sonically at all, but just storyline. It's like, oh, wait a second, that's kind of, you know, Beth retold. Uh, okay. I think this is more literal. I don't want to speak for him on his personal life. That's not my place. But I imagine it's literally just a pretty obvious feeling for a guy in a band Sure. You know what I mean? Going on the road and saying, hey, honey, you know, you know, stop worrying. All I'm really doing is just going out. Here. It's not all glitz and glamour most of the time. It's like getting in a van or, a, you know, a, a whatever. You know, sometimes if it's short distance, you're in a little van. Sometimes you're in a tour bus. Sometimes you're flying. But whatever you're doing, if you're doing a show every night, it's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yep. not that glamorous. Yep. As much as it seems like it, it isn't that glamorous. So I don't know. I've, I felt like it was... Maybe it shares the feeling, it, the lyrical content, the idea of uh, that Beth has, but I, I don't. I think it's it's 
it's it's it's just a dude song it's like a you know a, a strong a, a strong guy telling his wife slash girlfriend you know hey this is what's going on i'm on the road i'm just working sure and how about well, space invader that's an interesting one i was thinking about that because that obviously was a whole different experience because i'd never worked with him before um Hmm. I'm gonna have to look at the track listing to make a decision on that. I mean, I like the fun of Inside the Vortex. That was a pretty fun track. That is a cool and song. I, I tell you what, the the title track I think is phenomenal too. I just love that. Again, I just love that record. And I still say, you know, what a girl wants. I mean, what a catchy fucking song that is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I feel like that that was a fun album to work with him on. We did it over over Christmas. Um, I think he came in. I can't remember when he came in. Did he come in just before Christmas or just after? Yeah, so we started it just before Christmas, a few days. We took like one or two days off for Christmas, maybe definitely one, maybe two. And then we worked all the way through the Christmas break, which is actually good. Not not necessarily good from a family perspective with the kids, but it was good from a work perspective because nothing else is happening. So, you know, you could travel backwards and forwards. I think he was staying locally. But, yeah, it 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 definitely that's probably why for me, that's probably why the record came out great, because it was like there was no interruptions. There was nothing to worry about is just work on the record that's the great thing about when you which is probably could happen now if there's bands locked away in studios when this lockdown happened they could be making some of their best music let's hope let's hope <laughs> exactly let's hope they're taking advantage of this um of of those three albums that you worked on with ace which one is your favorite it's probably space invader because it's a, uh, you know it's like uh you know what i mean it's it's it, it's the first one and they all had amazing experiences, but probably the first one because it's like, hey, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I meet this guy. Um, obviously, you know, guys like John Bianelli. Do you know who John Bianelli is? He's like the, I don't know what he is. Is he like the managing director of Aerosmith? He's one. He's one of the high ups in Aerosmith. He helps keep the whole thing rolling. He's a really great guy, and he is the biggest Kiss fan. So and and so you know he he and I think he didn't he tour manage. Ace, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, John B. and Ellie. I don't know about and, that. And he just, he he loves Kiss, and he would talk a lot about Ace. And I, I remember when I was working on Space Invader, and he found out, and he's like, can you send me some roughs? And I went, no. <laughs> I went, no. <laughs> and he's like, oh, please, let me hear it, let me hear it, because he's such a big Kiss fan. And I was like, no. And then he wrote back to me, and he goes, you know what? I respect you more. I was like, yeah. Can you imagine if I was working with Aerosmith and sent people roughs to their album? Give me a break. It's not what you do. You know what I mean? But you still asked. <laughs> as a Kiss, so, as a Kiss fan, you've always got to ask. So, so here, yeah. as as two Kiss fans, we're going to ask you. Come on, do you have any demos laying around that you can just send us? <laughs> <laughs> and you know the answer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, no. It's funny. No, I've never, I've never had any music leak ever in my career. One, it's been under my control. The, every time we've ever had anything leak is when it gets to the label. Isn't that always the it's case? Because it, yeah, because there's always like a, you know, the. I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, a lazy A and R guy who says to his intern or her yep. intern says to the intern, sorry, 
just says, can you make me 10 copies of this? And then the next thing you know, it's online. Yep. You know, you, we go for this whole chain where I don't even let the assistant like get near the hard drives. You know, an assistant who's paid for a studio could lose his job and destroy his career if he touched it. I don't even let him get near the hard drives. And then I'm sending the music, you know, by courier, armed guard, you know what I mean, to a label. And then two days later, it's up online because, you know, Fred, the A&R guy, can't be bothered to make his own copies. Yep, exactly. It's always the way it it's is. happened to me a couple of times. Yeah, very, very annoying. Um, Warren, um, first of all, this has been fascinating. I love this conversation behind the scenes. Thank you for having me. Um, where can people find more information about you, contact you? Where Where do you want to send the fans to? Well, you can go to, um, for recording and mixing and all that kind of good stuff, you can email me at uh, warren at warrenhewitt.com. If you're interested in learning more about production and recording and engineering and learning, I do, I teach. And so I have a, a YouTube channel called Produce Like a Pro, um, which is pretty huge. It's got like 400,000 subscribers. Wow, good. So, um, so, if you, so if you're on that side of it and you're a guitar player and you want to learn how to record and mix and all that kind of stuff or a musician, singer, you can get me there. But if you want production stuff done, you can, you can email me up. Warren at warrenhewitt.com or Warren at producelikeapro.com. Awesome. Warren, once again, this, this was fabulous. I love, you know, behind the scenes is always great, especially talking to people who have produced, engineered, mixed, all the work you've done. You know, you, you, make, you make the songs that we fall in love with. You're far too kind. It, you know, there's a Quincy Jones uh, quote where it said the only things that the only three things that matter in music are the song, the song, and the song. Exactly. At the end of the day, <laughs> it's just the song. That's what you. That's what yeah. you fall in love with is the song. You might love Ace Frehley, the lead guitar player, but you want to sing along to a great song. Absolutely. Well, thanks ever so much thank, for having thank, me. Thank you, Warren. Take You're care. a great one. Thank you. Take care, now Warren. I wish I had my down to earth T-shirt on. It's in the house. <laughs> <laughs> All the best to you. All right. Thanks ever so thank, much. I thank, really appreciate it. Thank you. It. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. He's such a fun guy to talk to. Oh, I, I could have done that all day. That's the kind of geeky shit I'm, I'm into. I know. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I don't know the technical stuff about the gear and the recording, but I'm absolutely fascinated by that part of the world, of what goes on to make these songs come together, make the albums come together. The stories, the, you know, yeah, we didn't get any, oh, amazing unheard stories before, but we have stories about how this these albums came together. So when I listen to Space Invader Origins and Spaceman, the next time, it's going to be slightly different. It's funny. I, I'm currently reading, uh, well, again, pushing my friend's uh, literary works, but reading Martin Popoff's book on, uh, on, uh, on Saxon and what he was talking about really hit home. Cause I just finished, I'm, I'm, I'm right to the end of the book. And, you know, if you think about it, Saxon and Maiden came out of the same, you know, cauldron at the same time for the most part, 7980, yep. um, both had success in their, you know, their, their home region, but Saxon, you know, after never broke through the after, U.S. Like, uh, yeah, n never broke, and they spent 
the next 10 years trying, you know, chasing their tail. And everything that Warren was talking about, Saxon made the same mistakes. They sanitized and, you know, they took all the, and that's a big, and I, here's one thing I was hoping to talk to him about because he's English and I just couldn't find a way to fit it into the conversation. I was hoping maybe we, well, we, there's a guy we should have back on again, but he was fascinating, but they kept blaming it on the American producer, all the the records they had the, the least amount of success with. They, it was too American, too American. And I'm like, ultimately, guys, that's up to you. Yeah. You're the band. You know, the songs, if, if, if it's sanitized to death, will you let that happen? But, you but, know what I mean? But, but, but we know, you know, it's a, it's a very tough spot for a band to be in. Because the label is basically holding that carrot of financial support over them, saying, you want the financial support to keep touring, to stay on a record deal? Then you got to kind of do what we want to do, even if you don't agree with it. If you want to stick to your guns, awesome. But you know what that means? We're not giving you a budget to go record another album. Well, you know, it's funny because you see some... The, I'll give you two great examples. Quiet Riot did not, with a capital N-O-T, did not want to do Come On, Feel the Noise. Yep. They were literally forced into it. And let me let me say those guys were probably smiling for the rest of their lives yeah. because that was forced upon them. But in retrospect, look at a band like Crocus, who arguably were doing pretty good on their own. But then their their record company really, for the lack of a better word, cleaned them up, made them do some covers. I I mean I their cover of like Ballroom Blitz is just to me it's just like come on, you know you, you get forced into doing some of these things that you really don't want to do and they just don't come off, you know naturally and um, you know uh, we we talked a bit a bit about that with Charlie how. You know, some some bands in that era were forced into a certain look, into a certain sound, and you know, for the most part, it didn't work for for most of them. And um, it's just weird when you when you hear, you know, somebody like Warren talking about, you know, we're going to basically stick to our guns, we're going to stick to these tones, we're going to, you know, try and keep it as real as possible. And but you know, I, I guess let, let, let's keep in mind. World. Well, I was just going to say it's a different world now than it was early 80s, mid-80s, because back in the early 80s, mid-80s, all of this music was still happening. It was still in the forefront. It was still popular. So it wasn't so much trying to be your old self, because your old self is still here. Now we're talking 2020, you know, let, let's be honest, you know, Kiss, Aerosmith, yeah, the bands are touring, but their music, their new music... Nobody cares. You know, a new Def Leppard album can come out, and they're just going to play the old Def Leppard on the radio. They'll never touch anything new. So that's where I think it's it's kind of led some bands to go, well, gee, maybe if I want to get on radio, I need to sound a little more grunge-like. Hey, Kiss, you know, I should follow this trend because maybe that'll give me a boost. And I think, and, and listen, we all can list off bands out of the 70s and 80s, that post-Nirvana, the next album, you're like, 
what the hell is this? You guys are now all of a sudden wearing combat boots and flannel shirts and trying to sound relevant. And as music fans, we're like, that's not who you are. We don't like that. And it took those bands a number of years to finally realize, yeah, you know what? The fans were right. We shouldn't have done that. We should have stuck to what our fans like. But do you know some people, I'll, I'll give you one artist who did it really chameleon-like and got away with it uh, is Alice Cooper. Because he had his hair metal period. Yep. Then he had his Marilyn Manson type period. Then he, you know, then with eyes of Alice Cooper, then he, he went more back to just rock. And, and you know, and, and before that, you know, the, the special forces and the data. And what a what an incredible artist who can, can get away with changing. Literally, those are wholesale changes because each one of those eras – you can tell it's an era. And Alice was always smart enough to just do each thing for a couple of years. And then, you know what I mean? And then go to something else. Yeah, because someone else who kind of did that was David Bowie. Yep. Um, but it's funny. Bowie, and this is the hypocritical part. I, I liked the the stuff he did with Ronson, and, and, and as soon as he became the Thin White Duke, and that that's when he kind of lost me. I, I liked the rock and roll sort of. David Bowie, where Alice, though, has always held, I, I like all the eras for the most part. Um, so it's just weird, though, that, that some, and, you know, and, and Kiss to a degree, too, except Kiss was more trend-chasing, whereas I could say that Alice, with the exception of the, the hair metal and, and maybe the, the, uh, the obvious sort of uh, um, white zombie-ish kind of tones on Brutal Planet and stuff. But for the most part, you know, he was doing what he wanted to do, uh, whereas Kiss was kind of chasing trends. Do you, um, do you, do you, you know. think when it comes to Alice and, and Bowie, some of the reason they could get away with it is, to some extent, they were both seen as characters? They've both done characters... Over the throughout their career, basically, they reinvent themselves as a new character for this album, and then the next album, I'm doing a different character. It's still Alice Cooper, David Bowie, but it's doing something different as a that's character. A great, a... And you know, because you're a character, it's not seen as Alice the person; it's seen as Alice the character who did it, and they can get away with it. You know, Kiss, Kiss through the '80s, where they really were chasing trends, were no longer characters. It was just four guys. That's it. It was just four guys who used to be characters. But as we know, in the case of Kiss, you know, let's go back to that inevitable album called The Elder. There's four characters who tried to do something different, and those four characters couldn't do it. They couldn't pull off Unmasked to great success. You know, they couldn't pull off Dynasty in great success like they had just a couple years earlier. I don't, I don't know. Dynasty went platinum at well, the it, time. Well, it did, it did, but we know and that... It did have the, a top ten. And there, there is such a, a dichotomy. Literally one year. You think about that. In one year, the difference between Dynasty and Unmasked. Yeah. From a platinum-selling band with a top ten single to barely went gold, zero anything. Yep. I mean, that literally was what was what, because May of 79 was was uh, Dynasty, correct, on the release. Yes. And I think 
I think Unmasked was a literally a year, year later. later. I'm, un, 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 unmasked, unmasked like the Elder. They couldn't tour the U.S. Correct, and and I said that a couple shows ago, guys. If 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 you, if you think they wanted to go to Europe or Australia, no, they. Well, I'm not saying they didn't want to go, but if if they could have toured here and they played sure three nights at Madison Square Garden and played Kobo for two nights, why the fuck leave? <laughs> there's no, there's zero incentive to leave. But but you know? as as we know during the Dynasty tour that tour was not nearly as huge as what they had projected it to be. So they already started to see the writing on the wall when it came to their demand on the road during the Dynasty Tour. And and obviously once Unmasked hit, you know, that was the beginning of the end in the United States for them. Well, there's a very famous, or at least to Kiss Geeks, and I'm sure there's obviously more than a few of those listening right now. But, you know, that, that Grooves interview from 79 when, you know, the interviewer brought up, you know, hey, you know, tour's not selling as well or whatever. And, you know, Gene was like, ah, it's the gas prices. It's this and that. Hey, dude, um, got a mirror? <laughs> there's <Yep>. the problem. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, back, back to Warren. Um and I, I just love talking to producers, engineers, directors, um, because those are th- those are people who are there for something that so few of us will ever get to see and experience with any of our favorite bands. That that's like the ultimate final velvet rope that you just can't get past to be able to sit in a studio and and just absorb the dynamics of what's going on as something is being recorded i i tell you what i and obviously we're going to talk about it in a little bit but um you know i've spent hundreds of hours in recording studios over my 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 lifetime and that is such a special process when you do that and i know from you know from amateur to professional you know, when you capture that magic, and this, and again, this has nothing to do with selling records, but if you capture that magic, you, you can't help but sit and smile and go, "Hey, man, that was you know, it. We, nailed- we got it. We got it right there. That 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 and, cut, that was it. That take was it." Yeah, and and, and, and you know, even even now, when I when I listen to, uh, I agree, and and this is this is you know, this is kind of public knowledge. But I, I remember talking um, to Bruce Kulik about, you know, with, you know, just what things he helped with, you know, on, on like Psycho Circus. And I remember him beaming with pride the the intro to Within. You know, that's all Bruce Kulik. You know, those backgrounds it's coming in before. That's that creative process. Because that's not just him just going in there and hitting the court. You had to go, hey, you know, it's kind of like, what Hendrix did, you know, because he was so groundbreaking. He's like, you know, like on Are You Experienced? You know, th- that backward stuff. Someone had to sit and go, hey, I'm going to put a reverse gate on that. And what that is when you turn the sound around. Um, my, Mike, you're a big Sticks fan. Yep. Uh, and, and Renegade. That's, yep. that's just the drum sound played backward. That's what makes that drum sound like that. And that's the... That's magic when you get and you watch a good producer, good engineer, 
you know, put gates on things and I, you know, you know that, 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 you know, what, that is a great example because I've always associated the process of recording an album to the process a great chef goes through to prepare a meal. I love great food. I can't cook for the life of me. I love great music. I can't play, but to, to see a chef take this table of completely separate ingredients and know how to combine them to create the end result that makes you go, oh, food coma. You know, that's a talent. And in the studio, it's the same thing. You're, you're, you're a chef with music. And it's beyond me to even comprehend how would I have even known you could do that? You know, to, to know that, boy, this little, this little accent on a song at the beginning will make the song great as opposed to just good. And, and you know, I, I tell you, a great talk, uh, we're talking now about something that happened within the last couple of years, right? With, with Ace Freely working with Warren and they've got the time and, and these guys aren't even, and this, this all ties into Kiss guys. Paul doesn't even come to the room to do his vocal. You know, he sends yep. it. Yeah. What were we talking about a couple of weeks ago? Do you know why those special moments, and I'm just being honest, in a lot of ways aren't on the first three Kiss records? Because they were rushed. They didn't yeah. have any money. They didn't have any time. So, I mean, there's very few of those sorts of production things that, that, that you know, that you get on some of the, the, the later records. Because uh, Address to Kills specifically... That album is so dry. That album is, you know, every mm-hmm. song you can tell was like mixed at the same level. If you listen, if you know anything about mixing or, or it, but it, this doesn't take like rocket science. The drums are at this level on every freaking song. The bass is at this level on every dress to kill. It's and you could tell it was somebody who hadn't had a ton of. I mean. Like we talked about, excuse me, um, Bogart was a great bubblegum producer, but he was not a heavy metal, yep. hard rock producer. And it showed with how clean and crisp that that, that is, um, night and day from the, the previous record. Whereas now you go, you know, with, with A-Sun, because I think the Origins stuff just sounds, it just it, sonically, it's fantastic. Yep. Um, and I really liked White Room a lot. I thought Ace did a great job uh, on that. And, but, you know, just somebody who, who, who spent, you know, a lot of time in, in recording studios, that's a fascinating place. And, and it's one of the reasons even somebody like myself, why you, you want to keep doing it. It's a drug. It's so much fun. And it's not something, put it this way, there's a big difference between recording demos with your friends in a garage, and don't get me wrong, you can do that sort of thing well. But when you get into a regular, like a real studio with, you know, all the bells and whistles, wow, what a, you know. And you, I, I will tell you, your mind then starts going, hey, I, I've, I can experiment a little bit here. Um, like on our new record, I, I, I did a couple things with timpani mallets 
on on you know, I literally put a floor tom to the ground and I did these accents and 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 it, and, and you're talking about the producer thing on on our on our new record. Um, the the very first song, there's a about a 30 second a music intro, and it's kind of Black Sabbathy. And the and this had nothing to do with the band members. The guy producing it goes, "Wow, that sounds like Evil Incarnate." You know, that just sounds so heavy. He goes, "Let's put a fucking siren over it." And when that siren comes on, I remember the first time the hair on my fucking arm stood up. That's when you knew it was like, right. Yeah, but that's the whole thing. I didn't even hear it. And we're just sitting there and we're just getting off on the, you know, it's the hard, slow, doomy, because the song is very fast. But that that intro music, as soon as you drop the needle, you hear the, the sirens and that your mind conjures up that you know, apocalyptic sort of, you know, with the doomy, sludgy, Sabbathy sort of thing, and then these sirens wailing. And and when he was talking about, it, I'm like, dude, I know exactly what you're talking about. That is that is just an amazing feeling, and it's it's why people, you know, create stuff. You know, it's it's yep. just a, a great feeling. Yep. So homework, um, you know, of of those three albums that Warren worked on. Uh, Space Invaders, Spaceman, and Origins. Which one's your favorite? Which one, you know, what's your favorite track off of each one? Kind of the questions we asked Warren. You know, favorite album, favorite track off of each one. Um, did you learn anything from Warren? You know, I'd love to get some get some feedback, some homework answers from our listeners on that I, stuff. One of the things he talked about I really was fascinated with um, it was funny because he, he made the, the thing, he made the little joke about the song Emerald. If you, you know, that, that's not, that's not uh, cookie cutter guitar work on there. The fact that he said Ace and Slash were exchanging licks live back and forth and they captured that magic. That's cool stuff, man. Yep. That these two, these two, you know, legends. great guitar players. What's that? Two legends. Legends. Yeah, you know, standing, you know, a few feet apart, exchanging licks on, you know, let's face it, that 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 song Emerald is pretty, you know, from drum beat all the way down. That's that's not your average, uh, you know, nothing. I'm not certainly not making fun of it, but that's not your average ACDC. Doom, bop, doom, yep. bop, you know what I mean? There's a lot going on there. And the fact that, uh, you know, those guys nailed it the way he said they did just. I don't put a smile on my face. That was yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. No, overall, I loved, I just, you know, it was sort of like our interview last week with Justin. We didn't get any juicy stuff out of it, so to speak. But at the same time, we learned what it was like for these guys in the studio to record. What was going through their minds? How was it being approached? What were the end results? You know, that just, as I said earlier, helps paint a different picture the next time I listen to it. You know, the next time you listen to Emerald, you're going to picture Slash and Ace sitting on a couch. And I think that just makes the song a bit more personal. You've connected with it a little bit more. It's not just, you know, an auditory, you know, it's just not sound that you're hearing now. It's sound with what was happening behind that sound. Hey, Mike, I, just again, I've been going through uh, picking stuff, uh, you know, cleaning and putting where things should be. Um, talk about what how things used to be. Yeah. The 
you know, mixed special mix for radio where, you know, they take the album version and they tweak it and sanitize how, how, it. How, how, how about the the twelve minute version of I Was Made for Loving You? They turned yeah. that into a twelve minute dance single. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they you know, and to some extent they'll still do that. The but but the edits nowadays are usually much less obvious. They're trimming off a little bit of the song to make it shorter. They sonically might, you know, mastered for iTunes because they know where it's going. It needs to sound a little different. Um, for the most part, you're not getting like a complete different version of, of edits and songs anymore. It's, as a collector, it's a little sad because now there's less incentive to go out and get stuff. It's like, oh, this one's only two seconds shorter. What's the big deal? Well, you know, that it, it, this is a great example. Like, just as a KISS fan, you know, I wanted this just because it's got the, the card, uh, you know, on it. And it's got the, you know, the little heart thing on the back. Yeah. It's just, you know, and, and you get the, and that's a, <laughs> almost like the Kid Rock song says, radio edit. You know? Yep, radio edit. <laughs> they, would, they would put... They would make a radio edit where, like you just said, Mike, they didn't, they didn't, they mixed the radio single because they know the frequencies and everything of a, of an FM station. So they, they would, that mix would be a little bit either hotter or duller, depending on what the mix was on the actual yep. vinyl records, you know? So that, that was a lot of reason for those, for the singles. And here's a great example. You have you guys a lot of people when you think of rock and roll night off Kiss Alive, you think of the version on Kiss Alive. You know the one that was a big hit on AM radio was hacked to hell. It sounds sounds like they fucking edited it with a chainsaw. I mean, it's brutal. They took they knocked it. That that song's only like three and a half minutes to begin with. I think the the radio the one that you know that was in the singles charts back in seventy five and seventy six. That was only like two and a half minutes long or whatever. I mean, they chopped half the solo out. I think they chopped the whole verse off because it had to be nice and tight. It had to the... be tight. It had to be shorter. So, it, you know, they, they know for radio it's got to be under three minutes or, you know, they've got the magic numbers that the formulas. And that that's what happened starting in the 70s and definitely into the 80s. The labels discovered, quote, the formula that was most likely to succeed. Didn't guarantee you success, but it, it helped you. That's what made that scene in Bohemian Rhapsody so cool. <laughs> the band Queen went, here's their single of the song Bohemian Rhapsody. They're like, it's six minutes long. No one's going to play it. It's what, part opera? And they just went. <laughs> that's it. You, that We're not doing anything different. Yep. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Um, so you know what your homework is. Head over to Facebook.com slash Three Sides of the Coin, our page, our group, our Instagram, our Twitter, our YouTube, everywhere we hang out. Leave our leave your answer. We'd love to hear what you think. I, I love this conversation. Again, it was such a fun conversation. Um, and uh, just a reminder, if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that red subscribe button. If you're on Spotify, follow us. And if you're on iTunes, subscribe and leave a review and a rating. And uh, that's it. Three Sides of the Coin. We'll see everybody next week.
you love the show, go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks. Download your free free copy of the KISS School of Marketing. 11 Lessons I Learned Working with KISS. The number one downloaded business book on Noise Trade. Go to books.noisetrade.com slash Michael Brandvold. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. So you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks.